we, I mean, to be honest, all platforms are pretty shoddy once you actually use them every day, all day. But Zoom in particular always seems to kill me off whenever I use it. No, honestly. And <laughs> see, watch me not get sponsored by Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Juice. This week I am speaking to Yusuf through Zoom. We've had a stressful time through Zoom but you're here. Yes, virtually <laughs> yes we're here together. Yeah so today I, I really just wanted to talk about what you're interested in and you're interested a lot in psychology and I think that psychology and the study of people is always worthwhile but um, definitely worthwhile now that we're all locked inside and everyone's having various breakdowns in various different directions and having to come to terms a lot more with their own psychology and each other's psychology. So first of all, how did you um, decide that that's what you wanted to study at university? Yeah, it's a good question. So yeah, I I did my A-levels completely unrelated. I did chemistry, physics and French. Mm-hmm. At the time, I really had no like conscious idea or inclination for studying psychology. Um, but I think, you know, life works in mysterious ways. Um, yeah. And like looking back now, I can see how there were certain things which perhaps would have led me onto this trajectory without me knowing. So, for example, like, do you remember Mrs. Kusak? I don't know um, how much we can name drop, name drop on this podcast. Yeah, I think, I think we can name drop. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, anyway, it's all, it's all positive. Do you, do you remember her? I Did think she was, uh, she never taught me, but I do recognise her name. Okay. So uh, she taught sociology and psychology um, and she was my sixth form tutor. And we, we used to have some really interesting personal tutorials. It was, it was quite, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. Um, and so she gave me this book, They F You Up, by Dr. Oliver James. I've got it up there. And that, that was part of like the, my kind of gateway into psychology. So I, I read that and I used that as part of my personal statement. Um, but outside of that, so when I finished my A-levels, I still had no idea. I rejected university at the time. Um, yeah. I decided I would work as a teaching assistant in a special needs school. Mm-hmm. Um, so w- one of my elder brothers, he has autism, nonverbal, epilepsy, etc. Um, yeah. And so I, I worked at his school and I realized actually, you know what, I love psychology. I'd love to work as a psychologist. And so it was kind of like working backwards. So I thought, okay, I need to get a degree first and then we'll see where yeah. things go from there. Yeah. No, I think that's really interesting as well, especially that you worked at a um, special needs school. So how mm. was that? What kind of things did you have to do and what mm. things did you learn without sounding really artsy-fartsy about it? Yeah, yeah. I, I learned an incredible amount being there. Um, mm. The experience is just, I think, I mean, I have lots of criticism about the education system, but for example, like the whole issue of you for what like 16 years of your life being in a very, very specific cohort of people it's almost the exact same demographic of people they come from the same area same age same Mm -hmm. interests same etc etc um and then so the only time that you actually get to break out of that is like once you finish education um which is that wasn't me um which is (laughs) like either if you go into work or like once you finish university or something yeah um so there's two things that really took from that year so one was actually working with young children with quite severe autism um, mm-hmm. and or additional needs so 
like you have to change how you approach people one and then the second thing was just actually working with like different people with adults with younger people with senior people with it's yeah yeah no because um in my year out after university I worked as a teaching assistant as well it was just I love these drill noises that are coming up yes (laughs) I am in a construction site that's that's my excuse but yeah so I worked as a teaching assistant for six months and um it was just in a um secondary school but I had a lot of interaction with the kids who had um learning difficulties and behavioral difficulties um in the bottom sets and I think going to the education system like you were saying I think there's this huge stigma around like a a bottom set like they're called stupid because they're in this bottom set whereas a lot of the kids who are in these lower sets they just have learning difficulties and behavioral difficulties and various issues at home whether it be with family or um or whatever and that severely impacts on their um education and the way that they exist in the system and like you were saying you do have to completely especially kids who have autism or um there are a few kids with different types of disabilities I can't remember you have to completely change your approach and everything that you used to it's interesting like when you talk about the history of like education schooling and uh, kind of intelligence scoring like where yeah. does it come from and one of the big things was essentially it came from a place of identifying quote unquote the re- the retarded people mm-hmm. that that was the that was the first principle of uh, the like the modern genesis of education that we see so i think it was alfred binet in france and mm-hmm. so his purpose was essentially to categorize those who are too stupid to learn and so you can see that how that evolves into the um, the current education system that we have. It's not based on an idea of like personal development or that taking you from where you are to where you can be. It's mm-hmm. rather like trying to stratify and categorize people into neat labels, which we can then use for like future stages of work or education. Yeah, yeah. And do you think that... Um... Because one thing that I remember um, gaining after doing that work is I thought, oh, my God, every 19 year old should have to do this. They should have to do Mm. some form of community work, whether it be working as a teaching assistant in a school or um, working with the older generation. Did you think the same? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. I think that kind of links back with that idea of being so um, nestled in your own cohorts at school that you, yeah. you don't have an opportunity to break outside of that. And I think it fits in with the kind of societal element of the lack of intergenerationality. So the lack of um, links between different ages. I mean, there's, there's yeah. cross-cultural, that's one dimension, but age is another thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because like older people, I mean, invariably they have experience, whether they think of it well or whether they're wise because of it. That's a separate mm-hmm. matter, but they have experience. And as a young person, you have ability, you have youth, you have energy, you have capacity. Yeah. And so being able to break outside of just this schooling system where you're surrounded by exactly the same people, essentially, um, yeah. and being able to just see and work with different people, I think it's necessary. Mm-hmm. And like, definitionally necessary for uh, some kind of development I mean what what was your thoughts I I think you seem to resonate a similar idea 
Yeah, I mean, so I worked, um, I was by far the youngest person in the staff because yeah. <laughs> I just turned 19. And How did um, you find that? Um, I was going to ask you the same question, actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was good and bad in different ways. So it was really positive in my relationship with the the girls. I mean, I was at a girls' school and it meant that they kind of, they felt like they related to me and they felt really comfortable around me. So there were a few instances where they would be like the girl, my year 11 girls were my, you shouldn't have favorites, but I did have favorites. Um, <laughs> my year 11 girls were my favorites and they were all about 15, 16. And um, they had, they were the quote unquote, like the bad kids. They were the ones who misbehaved, the, the wind up merchants. And they were hilarious. They were so funny. And they trusted me more just because I was nearer to their age. So when it came to them getting told off or them misbehaving or something, they, from what I found, they would stop to do things quicker if I kind of spoke to them in the same way I would speak to my mates. And I'd be like, what are you doing? Like, you look like an idiot. And then they just stopped doing it because mm. they because of that age I mean mm. did you have the same experience um bluntly no um, <laughs> so the school that I was working in it was very uh, specialist so a lot of the the pupils are non-verbal um and if they are verbal then it's very very limited language so it was a very yeah, uh, yeah it, it looked nothing like any other school that you'd ever work mm -hmm. at so in that sense no um but I think like linking in with that idea of age and how it manifests and the dynamics of it. Uh, I think that there's, there's lots of other confounding variables to that. So in my case, I think being male, for example, did change mm -hmm. that dynamic because like whatever stance you want to take, whether it's this very almost radical feminist or radical socio-constructivist, whereby it's a completely patriarchal system and male have this privilege, which is just unequivocal. Yeah. In any case, I, I think I still did have that kind of level of privilege and not being undermined by my age so much. Yeah. Um, and I give that comparatively because, so for example, when I was doing my undergraduate placement is in clinical psychology. Um, mm -hmm. So I was working in this adult gender identity, identity service, and there's these two trainees. So they're doing their clinical psychology training. Um, mm -hmm. But they're at Hull University and Hull University, they have this strange program where everyone, all of the students come from undergraduate straight onto the doctorate program, okay. uh, whereas everywhere else, most people would get on it around 27. So the age is a, a lot younger. Mm -hmm. And so these two um, women, actually, they were older than me, I think one or two years older. Uh, they were mm -hmm. working in the same service, doing actually a lot more, a lot more senior than I was. Mm -hmm. And yet the kind of dynamics of it whenever we were in team meetings was was very different. It was almost like I held some kind of um, status or uh, respect or, yeah, respect that yeah. they didn't have. Or, and I remember even they were telling me about, um, so a lot of the work was psychodynamic. And so like they were doing some reflections on how there were some, um, some therapy sessions or assessments where like they'd have uh, a male who's probably in their 50s who's old enough to be their dad and they'll be mm -hmm. treating them as like their daughters and how that changes the whole dynamic of that space. Whereas yeah. if I was in that position, for example, it would have been a very different dynamic. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, 
I suppose it detracts a little, but that's, I think, how my age and ethnicity and just like the intersectional yeah. nature of a lot of these things. Yeah, I think it's it's weird as well when you are so young and you go to work in um, that kind of environment. I mean, I remember it, I had this really weird thing of being 19 and getting called Miss Douglas. And I was like, that's kind <laughs> of strange. <laughs> and also being like having quite a lot of authority. I mean, I remember being in um, one lesson with some year nines. Who? So if you're year nine, you're about 14, aren't you? Yes. It's a really, really irritating age. (laughs) (laughs) So I remember sitting at the back of this classroom and there was this male teacher who's teaching them. I didn't know him. And um, he was just terrible at um, Mm. telling them off and like disciplining them. He was awful. So then I remember there was this really, I mean, you're talking about gender dynamics and about how if you're male, you tend in these spaces to just kind of, have more authority and that's like you say to see with the patriarchy and all of this and it, it was this really weird switch because there I was this 19 year old lass who a lot of the time was patronized in different parts of life mm. for being 19 whereas in this classroom I was the one who had to discipline these 14 year old <laughs> girls and this male teacher would just go and miss and it just kind of sometimes a little bit threaten the the students with getting me involved and it was just it was so weird it was so weird but I think 19 year olds should be put into these positions you should leave school and you should go into the world and have some experience of it whether it be with people of a younger age or of an older age to you because this man who was must have been in his 50s or something he then had experience of a 19 year old girl who wasn't a child and I think that that was really beneficial for him especially working in a girls school because it just meant that um, he had experience of someone who did not live up to this stereotype that we churn out about young people being useless basically yes yes (laughs) we love that I mean, I'm curious what are your thoughts on, because I would assume that you probably would have seen it more than I had, um, mm. but like young teachers, because it's it's a trend you see, you know, lots of people, they'll just go straight to university, do their PGCE, become a teacher, and they're what, maybe 24, 25? Yeah. Um, young teachers, well, both of my parents are teachers, so um, I have a very well-formed opinion of teachers. <laughs> Um, I think there's a lot to be said for the fact that just because you like a subject and just because um, you are good at it does not mean that you will be good at teaching it. Mm. Um, And I think there's a lot of young people who go into teaching who realize that it is um, it's a lot more than just being able to read a book and then tell people about it. Like you have to engage people. And um, like you were saying, you worked with kids who had um, learning difficulties and even without the word disability involved, teaching different kids the same thing is is so hard. And I think, well, that comes back to um, the the way people learn and the way um, they ingest things and the education system not really catering to those differences. And I think that, as much as young teachers are really, really beneficial, 
because no one when they're about 12 wants to be taught by someone who looks 70 because they feel a disconnect I think that some young teachers do struggle because there's this assumption that just because they were good at it at school that they can teach it but yeah I don't know did you have many young teachers well obviously you were in a completely different environment did age come into it in that way no I mean I was just more curious in terms of um yeah I I mean like there's this there's this point I can't remember her name but she's on Instagram or TikTok I don't know um but she (laughs) does like funny parodies of teachers Mm -hmm. um and just like this power trip that teachers have in the context because like I I think about it and to think that a teacher can make students cry justifiably well not justifiably but in that they can justify making students cry for not doing like a piece of completely irrelevant homework that has no bearing on mm. their kind of ability or future or whatnot. And and there's something I notice, I don't know about younger teachers in particular, mm. that they they come from this very sheltered school life, go straight to university and mm. go straight back into school. And it, it's like, have, when, when have they ever broken out that whenever they yeah. really experience the world? And mm-hmm. That's just my, um, yeah. yeah I mean I do I I see what you mean when it comes to like the power trip because as a I mean everyone kind of jokes about it when they're younger and like plays teachers and stuff and someone will always say oh I'm gonna do the register and then tell someone (laughs) off and it is it is this whole power trip but then Mm -hmm. it's weird that people get hung up on that because why would you care about telling someone off about not doing their spelling or something Mm -hmm. I don't know yeah but then at the same time, to back teachers up again, my parents hate homework and they are also told <laughs> by people higher up in their profession that they do have to give their kids a homework, even though they don't want to give homework. So, but anyway, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've kind of talked about the education system now, but there you go. Mm. So mm. Um, another thing I wanted to speak to you about that I have mentioned to you um is when you asked me to do that photography project and were you discussing um were you looking into like hidden ailments because that's what I remember of the project yeah so the project I think it came out of um an interest that I have in photography as well as an interest in psychology and I think that they relate very nicely together and yeah. so the, the intention with the project was, um, so like in, in clinical psychology, you've got this debate around uh, the medicalization of experiences, for example. Like as soon as you say someone has schizophrenia, for example, you've medicalized them beyond the experience that they actually had. Um, okay. So like there's, there's this case study I, I read the other day about uh, someone's experience of anorexia. And it was just an incredible, incredibly just profound read because like you read about the condition and it's it's just very dry. It's like, okay, they have, they experienced this, 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 and this, this, this. And it's, it's just, it's very uh, formalized and medicalized. But when you actually yeah. see someone's genuine, their experience for what it is, then it means something. It's a very personal thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the intention with the project was not so much, not specifically to, hidden um, kind of ailments mm-hmm. or experiences but it was to say that um, so you have the idea of diagnosis versus formulation so instead of just giving this 
very lazy diagnosis and labeling someone you instead try to create the story or the narrative that they've of their experiences and say actually okay maybe they experienced depression but their family member died or something like that yeah they don't they don't conjure the same kind of thoughts or feelings when you hear the two things yeah and I think that kind of relates to what we were talking about with school that we're kind of, we're socialized to have these um labels and these descriptions like even even the term learning difficulties like that is just so um reductionist like that it just does not cover or express the the diversity of people and um the way that they are and the the way that they experience life and I think what I found really interesting about that project that you did and the fact that you were um looking into it was that it does bring up the whole thing about disability that it is it's given this term and then because it's given a term people think they understand it and as soon as you give anyone a term to describe them it doesn't it doesn't begin to describe them if that makes sense and um so what kind of I mean obviously you talk to me and I've got a spina bifida but what other people did you talk to about it um I mean it wasn't the greatest of timings Uh, you're probably the only one that I actually got some photos of Uh, but there was a couple of other people that I was I had recruited shall we say for this project yeah um so there's one good friend of mine uh Joe he uh, we studied psychology together um and so his his father passed when he was quite young and th- there's lots so he has two elder sisters um and his mother mm-hmm. and so there's a lot about uh kind of that experience and the experience of being a male within that context and mm-hmm. the i the um identifying as male masculine like what does that mean how mm-hmm. do you bring it forwards and then like reckoning that with a very female do- dominated environment in which he's grown up and learning a lot of those things uh, so yeah I, I mean you could reduce that to something which really takes away from the experience itself um, or you can try to create this narrative and let someone tell their own story so that was that was the idea yeah so do you think that the labels are useful or do you think people should just get rid of them um labels are in- incredibly useful um yeah. And I think it, it just depends how you use it. Because even like when we say that a, a diagnosis, for example, is reductionist, it's half true. It's half mm-hmm. true in the sense that it does reduce the amount of words that you say, but mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily reduce the kind of notions or ideas or feelings that are associated with it. Yeah. I mean, even if we use the metaphor, of, um, like a picture paints a thousand words, like yeah. that's in some sense reductionist, but it allows you to, build something from like this unifying concept so labels are absolutely I believe necessary I'm, I'm not a fan of this um, like I'll sit in some psychology meetings and they could have said like a diagnosis but instead they'll speak for half an hour trying to go around yeah. the, like yeah. around the bush saying like uh, maybe it's like uh, it's not personality disorder it's like a personality uh, you know misalignment it's, it's just like <laughs> you could you could just cut that all and just say what yeah. you mean to say so that's one aspect of it i think also with diagnosis like the etymology of it so gnosis is a knowledge of something which necessarily enriches something so Mm -hmm. for example gnostics like that is 
that describes a person who or people who mm-hmm. know kind of like wisdoms or truths like that's that's an agnostic so when you talk about diagnosis for example it's to give you something which you can work from yeah um, and it, it can be incredibly helpful and I've, I've seen it firsthand where okay for example in healthcare like people go around and you'll see these documentaries where they're like I didn't know what I was experiencing I didn't yeah, know yeah. what I was feeling and suddenly I hear about this term and then I can explore it I can mm-hmm. use this common language with other people Harry in your last uh, podcast was mentioning the same thing about uh, transfemininity so yeah. there's these kinds of things where language enables us to structure our own feelings our own experience and share it with others and communicate that yeah I, I mean I completely agree I think the thing with labels is that in order for them to not be useless it needs to be acknowledged that they they represent maybe the science of it or the specifics of it but they're not there to describe every aspect of it mm-hmm. so like if you're gonna um obviously people love it I mean that sounds awful to say but you do kind of love a diagnosis because it means that you know what you're dealing with like you're saying you know that you can look into it and there's also a sense of belonging that you might gain from it whereas before you felt like you didn't know what was happening to you but then I think there is a layer afterwards that needs to be considered that people's experience of the same label is never going to be the same because people Mm. are different Mm. yeah I mean as you say it's 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 how you use it then like Mm. okay you have this objective apparent uh, label but then how do people use it and I think that's just a human problem that we're faced with so much complexity and things being so incredibly complex that we just want to simplify and reduce and not be burdened not be overstressed etc and that's when you'll get people who will um, just reduce you to a label for example or reduce me to a label yeah. um, but it, it is it is a personal challenge how do you still contextualize that person how do you still give them the the kind of weight of um, story that they deserve but I, and I, I think that's more for an individual problem that we have to overcome rather than the system needing to necessarily change uh, yeah. to our every whim yeah because otherwise my god your diagnosis would be a like, <laughs> <laughs> <take so> long. <laughs> you've got to be pragmatic at some point yeah literally imagine if I was sitting down with spina bifida and they say right well it's not a deformity but <laughs> <laughs> it's yes, fine yeah. I'm deformed I get it just say it <laughs> but um as far as the coronavirus how do you think that has impacted people's relationship and understanding with psychology? Mm, Interesting one. Um, I think, well, yeah, again, it's a funny one. We hear a lot about like mental health awareness and um, talking about your feelings, being open, et cetera, et cetera. And it's it's a very big um, national push, if not uh, international push that we see across a lot of things. But in some sense, ironically, it almost becomes reductionist in the sense yeah. that we lose the meaning of what actually does it mean to talk about your feelings. Mm-hmm. Is talking about your feelings just blabbering on in a very self-indulgent fashion on, I don't know, some social media and just projecting everything out there? Or yeah. is it really about engaging with people who mean a lot to you mm-hmm. and trying to come to some kind of output or outcome? Mm-hmm. That's a very complex one. But I think 
what's happened in during COVID is that um, there's there's so many. I mean, this is like the perfect time for psychologist psychological research. There's yeah. so many phenomena uh, phenomena which are going on, like in terms of like defense mechanisms, in terms of like unconscious uh, reactions and things like that. Yeah. In terms of the individual, I think loneliness and isolation is really creating almost an existential problem. Yeah. Like what what is real anymore? Like now we're sat here in virtually the same room by mm-hmm. definition, but like what does it actually mean? Because we exist as physical beings as well as psychological and perhaps as spiritual beings. Yeah. But in this context, we've removed the physical being, and so it's just purely psychological. So like even in therapy, for example, in particularly psychodynamic therapy, there's a huge emphasis on the unconscious feelings that are transmitted from body to body mm-hmm. in that like your body would distort in a particular way if you're uncomfortable about a particular topic or something like that. Yeah. But when we socially distance on the large scale, we've completely lost all context of like, the physical being of someone like mm-hmm. even just to touch someone we've, we've lost all this kind of interaction um yeah and i think definitely comes back to this idea of an existential problem like what is real mm-hmm. what does anything mean i'm getting stressed out about university which is just on the screen telling me that i need to do 10 assignments in the next two months but there's nothing real about it if you know what yeah I mean. yeah no and i think that um a lot of people have had these experiences, but maybe not in a way that they've recognized that they've had. Like, I remember um, when I was locked away in Peru and, <laughs> and <laughs> didn't, didn't step outside for eight weeks. I mean, that was it, a very extreme, yeah. Yeah, that one um, probably didn't need to be as extreme as it was, but hey, <laughs> um, that's where I managed to quarantine. But yeah, you, um, you did start to realize that even the little things like being able to walk close to somebody else in the street, like that really, really does affect your perception of, of everything really. And it's like when I then came back to England, everyone's wearing masks and you, even little things like when you walk past someone, if you smile at them, you now don't know if they've smiled back at you. And Mm. now people almost don't, trust each other anymore because they don't trust each other to stand next to each other or whether they're looking at them or smiling at them and it just kind of creates a bit of a weird vibe I think Mm. yes um, weird vibe is is the perfect word I would use in this situation yeah is that psychological terminology (laughs) yes yes I think I think Freud uh would approve of that but it is true I mean like the the issues of distrust and almost like this generalized xenophobia that we have xenophobia in the sense of of foreign objects of alienism rather than yeah you know, black or something like that um because like, there's this this fear that we have to have that we, we need to distance each other we have to be suspicious of the other because yeah. you're not hygienic or that uh, you're too close to me or you're bluttering out some coughs there or something it's it's difficult to say what that will actually do but definitely, like without a doubt, it's it's going to take a couple of generations to overcome. Like even when we look at like the effect of other crises, for example, the world wars on psychology, mm-hmm. they had incredible, incredible effects on like mass psychology. You can't 
underestimate it and you can't even you, you cannot dismiss it in any way mm-hmm. so for example when we talk about um, like gender relations at the moment uh, or what it is now like that is invariably influenced to a, a really significant degree by the world wars and how yeah. that changed the whole con so there's the social context that completely transformed the psychological con- uh, construct has completely transformed as well and mm-hmm. so to think like where we'll go from here yeah I mean we'll get over it that's mm-hmm. what we do as human beings we have to but mm-hmm. there will be underlying effects which linger on for a long time yeah which is a really positive way to <laughs> <laughs> this is the hopeful message yeah <laughs> I support this message <laughs> <laughs> No, but I think, I mean, there are so many interesting elements to talk about. And I think especially with coronavirus, people focus a lot on the uh, the biology of it and the how, how much we're each going to catch it and whether it's going to kill us or someone that we love. And I think there's a lot to be said for the numerous consequences that are going to happen socially and culturally. culturally. Mm-hmm because of this I mean people's relationships with um, their own mental health and their own understanding of like you were saying talking about what they're feeling and people's relationships with each other are just completely going to change and I think it is really worthwhile having those conversations and trying to preempt a little bit how they're gonna change and what people can do around it whether there is anything that they can do so yeah Thank you so much for talking to me. It's been a pleasure. I'm glad that you've enjoyed it. (laughs) I'll definitely get you on again to psychoanalyze something else. Yes, I look forward to that. (laughs) 